Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Gabriella Mendel, and I'm a third-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm joined by two guests on today's episode. Our first guest is Dr. Retta Basali, who is Professor of Pediatrics at MCG and a pediatric hospitalist here at Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome. Hi, Gabriella. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is a familiar voice on the podcast. We have Dr. Zach Hodges, who is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and also a hospitalist here at the Children's Hospital. Hey, Gabriella. I'm glad to be back. Let's get started. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing bronchiolitis. Dr. Basali, will you tell us what is bronchiolitis and why this topic is so important? Sure. Thanks, Gabriella. Bronchiolitis is a seasonal viral lower respiratory infection that typically begins in the fall and peaks in the winter each year. It is one of the greatest burdens in pediatrics health worldwide. It's caused by respiratory viruses, especially RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, that infect the lower airways. This causes inflammation, edema, and increased mucus production that ultimately can lead to worsening respiratory distress. Children that are most severely affected are unable to breathe or maintain normal feeding and may become dehydrated. This is something that is really difficult for our patients and their families. The peak incidence is between 3 and 6 months, and this is the most common reason for an infant less than 1 year of age to be admitted to the hospital. Thanks for the great overview. Next, I thought we could work through a case. Our patient is a previously healthy 4-month-old male who presents to the emergency department with a 3-4 to day history of rhinorrhea and possible fever. Mom states that at first he just seemed congested. However, yesterday he started coughing and now seems to be having a hard time breathing. Dr. Hodges, what is your approach to a patient like this? So far, this sounds like a typical history for bronchiolitis. These infants start with viral upper respiratory symptoms like runny nose and cough, followed by progressive lower respiratory symptoms over the next few days. Most often, there's also a viral respiratory infection going through the family at home or in daycare. It turns out that viral infections that typically cause a common cold in adults and older children are more likely to cause lower respiratory infections in young infants, especially those less than six months of age. However, before we call this bronchiolitis, we should get a little bit more history to make sure we're not missing another serious diagnosis. And it might be helpful to mention some of those diagnoses now. Sometimes undiagnosed congenital airway abnormalities, foreign bodies, pertussis, and even congenital heart disease can be confused for bronchiolitis early on. This is why every patient needs a careful history and exam. Great, so let's get more history. Mom reports that his temperature at home has been around 100 degrees Fahrenheit or less each of the last three days. He has also been somewhat irritable over the past day. Oral intake has been reduced with decreased wet diapers. Mom says that she has also been worried about his breathing. She states that he has been breathing fast and his breathing has also been noisy. Our patient's brother goes to kindergarten and he has been congested as well. Medical history is significant for birth at 34 weeks gestation with a short NICU stay of one week for respiratory and feeding support. He has no known medical problems and vaccines are up to date. So this is even more evidence of bronchiolitis. It's common for these children to have a low-grade temperature of 101 degrees Fahrenheit or less. High or prolonged fevers would make me think there was an increased chance of a secondary bacterial pneumonia, but this illness script is typical of a viral infection. The next thing that stands out is the patient's age and medical history. Bronchiolitis is very common in infants, but may present in toddlers up to two years old. Infants who are born prematurely or who have chronic lung disease, congenital heart disease, or an immunodeficiency are likely to have more severe symptoms. 
Since he was born at 34 weeks, he is at higher risk of having more lower respiratory symptoms like persistent cough, tachypnea, and retractions. It's unlikely that he has undiagnosed cardiac disease or another congenital disease, but he still needs a careful exam. Do you want to tell us more about his exam in the ED? Sure. Vital signs are notable for respiratory rate of 60 and temperature of 38 Celsius. Pulse ox reads 94% on room air. On physical exam, he is alert but in mild distress. There is thick nasal discharge and nasal flaring. He has moist mucous membranes. Listening to his chest, you hear scattered crackles and wheezes. There are also intercostal retractions. Heart sounds are normal and pulses are strong. There is no hepatomegaly and the rest of his exam is normal. Great, so there are several helpful things here that we should highlight. First, bronchiolitis is characterized by minute-to-minute variation in clinical findings. These children have varying degrees of lower airway mucus plugging, and I would not be surprised if you re-examined your patient a few minutes later and he was significantly different. Next, the tachypnea, mild hypoxemia, retractions, and abnormal lung sounds all suggest lower airway disease. You mentioned that this infant has scattered crackles and wheezing. Bilateral crackles and wheezing are consistent with bronchiolitis. If there were more focal findings, then we would need to consider bacterial pneumonia or even a foreign body. Also, the fact that he has normal heart sounds, strong pulses, and no hepatomegaly makes cardiac disease less likely, and we can focus on the respiratory causes of his symptoms. And the progression of symptoms here is very important. Having one or two days of runny nose and cough followed by worsening lower respiratory symptoms fits with bronchiolitis and not other diagnosis on our differential. Something that we have not yet mentioned is that children born prematurely, especially those not yet 48 weeks post-conceptional age, are at increased risk for apnea as the presenting symptom. This risk of apnea is also increased in term babies who are not yet two months old. We have to be very careful in these infants, and observing them in the hostel overnight is typically a good idea. Before we move on much further, how do you make the diagnosis of bronchiolitis? Do we need to check any labs or an x-ray? Good question, and this is very important. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis. If the history and exam fit, then you can make the diagnosis without any other test. Chest x-rays in these infants commonly show nonspecific findings like peribronchial thickening, hyperinflation, and scattered atelectasis. In fact, we know that routine labs and imaging leads to overtreatment with antibiotics, which does not help this viral infection. It's really a good idea to save labs and imaging for those situations when you are not sure about the diagnosis. Some examples would be when a patient presents with high fever, focal findings on auscultation of the chest, or if the history really does not fit. Of course, if the child is severely ill and develops worsening hypoxemia and grunting, they likely need a full investigation. Okay, so to quickly review, bronchiolitis is a seasonal viral respiratory illness that infects the lower airways leading to inflammation, edema, and increased mucus production. Ultimately, this can lead to worsening respiratory distress. Diagnosis is clinical, and a typical patient may present with low-grade fever, one to two days of runny nose and cough, followed by trouble breathing. Finally, prolonged high-grade fever, vocal respiratory findings, or abnormal cardiac findings are reason for concern for a different diagnosis and would prompt a more thorough workup. That's right, you got it. So what viruses typically cause bronchiolitis? As Dr. Basali mentioned earlier, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is the most common cause, but many other viruses can cause lower airway disease in infants. Other common viruses include rhinovirus, influenza, parainfluenza, and metanumovirus. 
The presentation of all these different viruses are basically identical, and we can really only differentiate with testing. We also know that coronaviruses can cause bronchiolitis. One unknown for pediatricians this winter is how much bronchiolitis will be caused by COVID-19. It's reasonable to think that we will see some COVID-19 bronchiolitis, but we will have to see how this impacts infants this winter. Wow, that's really interesting. So what is the role of viral testing in cases of suspected bronchiolitis? Should we test every baby? Does it really make a difference? Typically, viral testing does very little to change our management of these infants. However, with COVID-19, we will likely need to test much more this year because this information could be helpful for our families, schools, and daycares. Also, if there is ongoing community transmission of influenza, testing for a flu is reasonable because treatment with ulcitamivir may be indicated. It can also be helpful for our hospitals to identify the viral pathogen for cohorting patients. It's not uncommon for us to find multiple viruses detected by PCR. Rhinovirus is most commonly found in addition to other respiratory viruses. It's not clear if co-infection leads to a worse prognosis. What's more likely is that we are seeing prolonged viral shedding after a previous rhinovirus infection. Also, it can be helpful for some patients to know if they are infected with RSV. Pavlizumab is a monoclonal antibody to RSV that is given to certain high-risk infants. If these children have a breakthrough RSV infection, then monthly prophylaxis should be discontinued because of the extremely low risk of a second RSV hospitalization in the same season. So which patients are treated with palivizumab for RSV prophylaxis? I recommend reviewing the AAP guidelines whenever you are considering prophylaxis because recommendations are updated periodically. Currently, it is indicated during RSV season during the first year of life for infants born before 29 weeks of gestation or those born before 32 weeks who have chronic lung disease on top. Infants with hemodynamically significant heart disease or those who are immune compromised have pulmonary abnormalities or neuromuscular disease that impair airway clearance should also be considered for prophylaxis. One of the challenging aspects of pavaluzumab for our families is that it requires monthly intramuscular injections for a maximum of five doses. This usually starts in October. There are ongoing trials of single-dose anti-RSV monoclonal antibodies and also RSV vaccines, so stay tuned for more information on this topic. Okay, sounds great. We will be sure to include a link to the AAP palivizumab guidelines in our show notes. Circling back to our case, remember that our patient is a four-month-old in the ED with suspected bronchiolitis. What is your first step in treatment? Good question, Gabriella. As we mentioned, bronchiolitis is one of the most common illnesses and reasons for hospitalization in young infants. There have been many studies to try to find effective treatments. The take-home point is that there is no convincing evidence that any intervention is effective in treating bronchiolitis. Corticosteroids, albuterol, nebulized epinephrine, and even nebulized hypertonic saline have all been studied and have not been shown to benefit meaningful clinical outcomes. The American Academy of Pediatrics, in fact, recommends against routine use of these interventions. The cornerstone of treatment is excellent supportive care. This includes maintaining appropriate hydration and respiratory support as needed. Dehydration is one of the most common reasons that we need to admit these infants to the hospital. And the respiratory rate increases up to 60 or 70 breaths per minute. It interferes with effective breast or bottle feeding. It's not uncommon for us to place an IV and give maintenance fluids or nasogastric feeds for a couple of days until the respiratory symptoms improve. 
So to quickly highlight this important concept, there are no proven effective medical treatments. This includes antibiotics, steroids, albuterol, nebulized epinephrine, and hypertonic saline. Are there any other interventions that we can offer families to help reduce some of the symptoms? The best thing that we can offer our families is frequent nasal, saline, and suctioning. Remember that young infants are obligate nasal breathers. Nasal congestion can really interfere with breathing during feeds. It's common for us to recommend parents to add saline to each nares and then suck out the mucus with a bulb suction. This is a good idea right before feeds and before a nap. And something that works well for many of our families is a nose Frida. This is an inexpensive device that allows caregivers to safely and hygienically suck mucus out of their baby's nose. After getting over the initial thought of sucking mucus directly out of your baby's nose with what's essentially a specialized straw with a filter, our parents really like it because it works so much better than a bulb suction. We, of course, receive no money from the company, but I will leave a link to it in our description and show notes on our website if you would like to check this out. Great. So in summary, good supportive care with nasal saline and suction is all that is needed for most cases. Another concept that I've gathered so far is that most of the time, bronchiolitis falls an expected clinical course. Is there a particular timeline that you tell families when to expect the worst symptoms? Yeah, good question. As with most viral infections and bronchiolitis, there is an expected timeline for worsening and then later improving symptoms. RSV and other respiratory viruses typically start by infecting the upper respiratory tract, causing nasal congestion, drainage, and cough. Over the next couple of days, lower respiratory symptoms become more apparent and classically peak at about day three to five of illness. It's worth noting, of course, that there is much variability and those patients with medical comorbidities might even have prolonged symptoms. We should also counsel our families that it may take upwards of two to three weeks for symptoms to completely resolve, and it's not uncommon for infants to even have a residual cough for a little while afterwards. And it's important to keep this normal timeline in mind when you are evaluating your patients. If a patient has a prolonged fever or if their respiratory symptoms seem to be progressing past the expected time, we should revisit our differential to make sure we are not missing an alternative diagnosis. Also, if you are on the fence about whether a child needs to be admitted and it's only day three of illness, then symptoms might worsen before they get better. For these infants, it might be best to observe them overnight to be safe. Okay, so thinking again about our patient. Remember he is on day four of illness with some concern for mild dehydration and is breathing up to 60 times per minute. How do you decide if this baby needs to be admitted? This is a good question, and there really is no perfect answer. Keep in mind, the overwhelming majority of patients will have mild disease and will be safe to go home. It's those patients who present with moderate to severe symptoms that we consider for admission. Of course, if there is dehydration or need for oxygen, those babies are coming into the hospital. For those infants with equivocal findings, I think the most important thing is do not base the decision to admit on one exam. Go back and reevaluate your patient, especially if you ask the staff to provide nasal saline and suction. The symptom severity can change minute to minute, so you want to be sure you have a good idea of the general trajectory before you decide on a disposition. We also need to consider the patient's access to care. If the family has difficulty finding transportation or limited health literacy, it might be safer to lean towards admitting for observation, especially in those infants who are early in their disease course or have other risk factors. And those risk factors being history of prematurity, chronic lung disease, heart disease, and immunodeficiency? Yeah, that's right. 
Also, infants who are less than three months old or those with a respiratory rate approaching about 70 breaths per minute may not do so well. It's not a bad idea to admit those babies during the peak of their illness. Okay, that makes sense. One question that I have about management is why not try something like albuterol? It seems that bronchiolitis is very similar to asthma, so what is the harm in giving them an inhaler? That's a good thought. This has been well studied in randomized controlled trials, and consistently infants with bronchiolitis do not benefit from inhaled beta agonist. They do not affect disease resolution, need for hospitalization, or length of stay. The lack of response to albuterol is likely due to the different pathophysiology compared to asthma. Remember that in bronchiolitis, you have wheezing from lower airway edema and mucus plugging. Airway obstruction from asthma, on the other hand, is due to smooth muscle constriction, which is typically responsive to bronchodilators. All that being said, keep in mind that there may be a small subset of patients who may actually have reversible airway obstruction. These are most likely older children with recurrent wheezing and positive family history for asthma. It's not a bad idea to think about offering a trial of albuterol in patients who might be suffering from recurrent wheezing, but don't be surprised if it does not help. You will also be left with the predictable side effects of albuterol like tachycardia and jitteriness. So overall, what you're saying is, in patients that have mild disease, it is safe for them to stay home, and we can advise the parents to do frequent nasal saline and suctioning. Likely, their symptoms will peak on day 3 to 5, but it may take 2 to 3 weeks for the illness to totally resolve. On the other hand, if the patient is presenting with moderate to severe illness, we consider admission for respiratory support and fluids. One more question is how do you use the pulse ox reading when thinking about admission? This is another interesting question. Most of the time in pediatrics, if your patient's oxygen saturation ever drops below 92%, that is a relatively clear indication for admission. Of course, if there's obvious cyanosis, persistent hypoxemia, or apnea, support your patient with whatever they need. However, in most patients with bronchiolitis, we know they will have intermittent hypoxemia with lower airway mucus plugging that spontaneously improves. Even outpatients who never present to the ED have been found to have these dips in oxygen saturations while asleep or while feeding. It's just really hard to not admit the baby when you see the O2 saturation occasionally falling below 92%. Again, it's best to not let one variable at one particular time direct your entire decision. Re-exam your patient and use the entire clinical context to make your decision. There have actually been blinded randomized trials looking at different oxygen saturation targets in bronchiolitis. One very interesting study falsely elevated pulse ox reading by 4 percentage points. For example, if the infant's oxygen saturation was 90%, then the monitor actually read 94%. The treatment group with the falsely elevated pulse oximeters were admitted much less often and did not suffer increased adverse outcomes. We also know on the pediatric wards that continuous pulse oximetry increases length of stay but does not really improve outcomes. This all just suggests that we might put a little too much emphasis on the blue number on the monitor and instead we should focus more on the patient. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I wanted to take a moment and focus in on those patients with the most severe disease. How do you know when the infant might need a little more support than a nasal cannula or even escalation of care to the ICU? So this is one of the most difficult questions to answer. Many young infants with severe disease will require non-invasive ventilation and ICU admission during the peak of their illness. 
Each hospital system will have their own protocol describing when to escalate care depending on the amount of support required. In general, when infants are requiring more than 1-2 to two liters by nasal cannula to maintain saturations, or if there is severely increased worker breathing, then other modes of support should be considered. Most of these infants are trialed on high-flow nasal cannula. What is high-flow nasal cannula? High-flow nasal cannula is a way to deliver humidified and heated oxygen by a specialized nasal cannula up to 2 liters per kilogram of the child's body weight per minute which is much more than standard oxygen therapy that cannot be tolerated at higher flow rates. In 2018, a large multicenter randomized study was done to answer the question, does the use of high-flow nasal cannula to hypoxic infants with bronchiolitis reduces the need to escalate care in comparison to standard oxygen therapy? They concluded that the infants that had high-flow nasal cannula outside the ICU had a lower rate of escalation of care than those who received the standard therapy, though there was no significant difference on duration of hospital stay, duration of oxygen therapy, or days in the ICU. Also in 2019, a systematic review and meta-analysis concluded that high-flow nasal cannula is safe as an initial respiratory management, but the evidence is still lacking to show benefits in bronchiolitis compared to standard oxygen therapy, so stay tuned for further research. So it seems that high-flow nasal cannula might prevent ICU admissions or even more invasive modes of ventilation, but we should not expect to use it to shorten disease duration or length of stay. That's right. There's also ongoing debate if high-flow nasal cannula is appropriate for patients on the general pediatric ward or if all should be in an ICU or step-down setting. There is currently significant variability in practice among children's hospitals, and hopefully we'll have more convincing evidence soon. Also, stay tuned to our podcast for an upcoming episode dedicated to all the different modalities of non-invasive respiratory support, including high-flow nasal cannula. Excellent. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, sure. I thought that we should chat a little bit more about prevention. As we know with dealing with COVID, good hand hygiene is very important to prevent spread of respiratory viruses. We should also ask our patients' families about smoke exposure, and this might place them at a higher risk for severe symptoms. And as good general pediatricians, we should encourage our mothers to breastfeed. With all the other benefits, exclusive breastfeeding reduces the risk of infants developing bronchiolitis. Wow, we really have covered a lot today. So to wrap things up, do each of you want to leave our listeners with some take-home points? Sure, I can get us started. First, bronchiolitis is a viral respiratory illness that mostly affects infants and toddlers. It is characterized by a few days of upper respiratory symptoms, like runny nose and cough, followed by lower respiratory symptoms. Next, there may be significant minute-to-minute variation in clinical findings due to lower airway mucus plugging, which can be scary at times, but the majority of these patients will do very well. Third, as long as there aren't any concerning findings on history or exam, the diagnosis is clinical and treatment is supportive. For patients treated at home, nasal saline and suctioning can be used to help the patient breathe easier. Also, if the patient is in respiratory distress or has risk factors for severe disease, Admission may be required for observation, respiratory support, and hydration. Other therapies like albuterol, steroids, and nebulized epinephrine have not shown any benefit. Know your hospital protocols and closely monitor infants with moderate to severe symptoms. Consider high-flow nasal cannula for those infants that require more support than just a standard nasal cannula. And as always, we want to encourage mothers to breastfeed and everyone to keep washing their hands. That's a great summary. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Basali and Dr. Hodges for being here today. Thank you. Thanks, Gabriella. I had a great time. An additional thanks to Dr. Kathleen McLeod, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.